0: Father, we come to you with hearts that long for that which is eternal. We live in a world where things are so trivial, where where there's so much information that's thrown at us and it's so irrelevant. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, it's not a big deal. Things come and go, there are trends that all of a sudden are hot and popular and then they're irrelevant and laughed at. Lord, we need to have your eternal word as a guide for us in a world that's really gone off the tracks. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as we, <clears throat> as we uh, humble ourselves today, as we look into a very controversial part of your word. Lord, help us to be faithful and to follow your word wherever it leads. And toward that end, Lord, we, help, we pray that you'd also help us to celebrate the gospel and to acknowledge that, Jesus, Lord, we want to honor you. Therefore, we want to remain faithful to your word, whatever it teaches. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm blessed to be uh, able to minister in an age and time in which, if you missed last week's sermon, you can still listen to that, whether it's through a CD in the back here from our our tape ministry or uh, sound ministry, or you also can listen online. So I'm hoping that if you were not here last Sunday, that you will listen to that sermon. It's very important to understand what we've uh, covered last week. Um, Last week, we basically tried to lay out for you the understanding that the Bible teaches that women are not inferior to men. Now, if you heard me say something other than that, you were not carefully listening. Women are not inferior to men. They are equal to men but they have different roles that are assigned to them by God. Now, we we emphasized proof of that particular principle by looking at the dynamics among the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We noticed that the relationship in the Godhead, there is equality. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal in glory, honor, and in their essence. But among the members of the Trinity, there is role differentiation. We laid that out last week, a very important principle. If you don't understand that, then a lot of what we say becomes problematic. So role differences among equal men and equal women is God's ordained pattern for the family. And we tried to explain that briefly last Sunday. Now these roles, we're trying to suggest, have been redeemed by the gospel, and that God for his glory is taking these roles, and he is saying, I want to point people to the gospel through the roles of the differences between men and women in the family relationship. Sadly, as I was reading further this week, I noticed uh, one particular author said that it's not that uncommon that in the relationship between men and women in the marriage relationship, husbands can be, and often are, inactive, inarticulate, lethargic, and withdrawn at home. Many husbands assume a passive role in their relationship to their wife. And this passivity, the author contends, and I would agree with him, drives most wives crazy. Because what they're looking for is a husband who is completely engaged in the relationship, who is showing up every day, interacting with his wife, showing uh, various forms of leadership. Now, this same husband may be extremely successful and articulate at work. Most are. But at home, many of these husbands will say in a dozen different ways, I'm tired, just leave me alone. And when the wife makes requests, Many men ignore them. And then when she makes those requests louder, he retreats further. And when she adds pressure and begins to sort of nag or become like a broken record, many of you don't know what that means, sorry. She becomes a person who repeats things again and again. He lapses into sullen silence. And ultimately, if not through the gospel, and, and not through the life-changing, life-impacting truth of God's word, he oftentimes will just withdraw. And one observer then adds a sad description of the fallout of an unbiblical marriage roles, and that's what we oftentimes see in our culture. And even within the church, there are some who, who find themselves in these very unhealthy patterns. We find the passive man... And wild women, by that I mean wild in the terms of they are so frustrated pulling their hair out trying to make this thing work. Now, what I'm saying here is the gospel is key. The gospel helps to motivate husbands. We tried to talk about this last week. And husbands that need to assume their God-given role as loving, servant leaders. That's what we want, and that's what God wants, and that's what God intends for His people to embrace the gospel and live that out. And wives are to help to complement their husbands in their leadership role. And therefore they display the gospel by yielding to him as unto the Lord. And so if you want to look that up further, we talked about that in Colossians and Ephesians 3. Now I'm going to ask something strange I don't want to do, but I am chilly in here. And I've asked to have these fans turned off. They went on fast, now they're on slow but I'd ask if we could just turn them off. I'm, I'm chilly. My hands are cold. So could we do that? Thank you. Appreciate that. I don't want anybody so shivering they can't even listen to what I'm saying. I don't mind you shaking. If, it, if, if the Spirit is applying the message, that's okay. But if you're shivering and blowing on your hands, which I feel like doing right now, uh, we might not be able to listen uh, and have good concentration. Now the other thing I want to be careful is, too, I realize that many women can become angry and critical of an ineffective husband who is not following the right role. And when that happens, then we have a tendency to see, the again, role reversal and the problems on that end of the equation. And again, I would say, I don't have all time to talk about that th- this morning, but clearly Scripture speaks to these issues about each focusing on what God is calling them to do And applying the gospel to their hearts and lives is the only hope of seeing marriages redeemed and changed and made the better for the glory of Christ. And so that's what I wanted to lay out there as building from last week. Now let's move forward. This morning, I've got my armor on, and I'm ready to deal with another hotly debated uh, topic, the roles of men and women in local church leadership. Now, I'm aware, as I looked, tried to do some research on this, I couldn't find a lot of specific answers, but I went online and I looked at um, Wikipedia, and they listed 36, what they called, evangelical denominations. Now, that includes anybody and everybody that, for whatever reason, they, they fit under that heading. I don't know where they came up with that. But anyway, that's what they have, 36 denominations. And they list, of those, 25 of the denominations listed, Ordained women. And 11 of those denominations do not. Now, what I'm trying to use with that particular crazy statistic, and again, I'm not trying to distort things, but I'm just saying that's a sampling that shows that, by and large, this is a trend that's moved in the direction of increasingly more and more denominations are ordaining women. And there is now, I would say, a minority of, of denominations that do not. Now, that raises some questions. Because some denominations would claim that to... Ordain women is really appropriate. It's something to rejoice over because women have been so oppressed for so many centuries. Now, we're not arguing about the the issue of whether women have been oppressed. We would concur with that. But some denominations will also argue that the gospel of liberation ought to bring about an equal role of men and women, that there should be no distinction between men and women because of they would claim the gospel. And some would claim that those who limit the preaching responsibility and the eldership to men are actually nothing more than patriarchal chauvinists. Now, what about our church? Are we patriarchal chauvinists? God help us, I don't want to be in that camp. But did you know that our church constitution... How many of you know that we have a constitution? Don't answer that question. Okay, We we do have a constitution... It's a rather old document. Uh, It precedes me. Uh, But anyway, it has in its section six on officers, it says, quote, pastors, elders, and deacons shall be men, period, unquote. So my question then to you is, we're not going to quote a constitution as to why we do what we do. We're going to ask the bigger question and the more fundamental issue that really faces churches and denominations in our particular church, and that is this, does the teaching of the New Testament differentiate the roles of men and women in the local church when it comes to leadership and preaching roles and responsibilities? And so that brings us now to our point in our outline where we're going to affirm, and I'm going to try to show you evidence of this from the Scriptures, that the New Testament teaches that the redemptive role differentiation among equal men and women in marriage and family relationship also exists in local church leadership. So we're arguing in two realms, in the marriage relationship and home, and also in the relationship of the local church, in the realm of the local church leadership. Now if you've got your Bible, let's turn it open and let's find our way into 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, page 1411 in your... Bible. Now Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> and he's writing to his protege, his spiritual protege, his spiritual son, as it were, Timothy. And Timothy is involved in leading a flock of believers, a local church in Ephesus. And again, He speaks to him from the perspective of a senior apostle and a person who started churches as one who speaks to him and his situation with the authority of an apostle. If you look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, look at what he explains as to why he's writing this particular letter. you with me? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So here is Paul, and he wants Timothy, as this young pastor, he wants him to know what is the proper way for people who are church members who are part of this local church, how do they conduct themselves in a local church? How should you conduct yourself? What are the things you should be emphasizing and carrying out along with other people in the local church? Now, Paul's instruction for his spiritual protege does not contain things like generalized suggestions, like, well, Timothy, do whatever brings about the best results, which tends to be what many churches do today. Whatever seems to work, whatever seems to gain people in the doors, that's what you ought to be doing. Accommodate to the culture because you've got to what? You've got to earn the base. You've got to get people in the doors so you do things that they like so that you make it a comfortable place for them. So that pragmatism tends to be what many people believe operates how the church ought to be operating. Whatever seems to work, do it. But notice this counsel that he brings in this book is not a series of pragmatic suggestions. Paul sets forth, excuse me, <clears throat> authoritative guidelines for specific situations that Timothy faced in his local church, and I would argue in any local church. He's speaking as to what the church is, how it's to function. Now, watch this. Verse 15 indicates that the church is the household of God. Another way to translate that is, it is the family of God. It is not a corporation. The church is not a civic organization. The church is the family of God that meets together in a local place. That is critically important to you to understand why this principle affects what I said last week and what I'm trying to build on today. Now, this is not just a momentary uh, thought that Paul had. He it reiterates this kind of concept of looking at the church as if it were a spiritual family. He says the same thing in Ephesians 2.19, where we read, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household. You are of God's family." So Paul's saying local churches are to be viewed as, indeed, God's family. Paul made it very clear in Galatians, what we've been looking at, and again, I'm just taking a time out here to look at a uh, sub-point here under our study of Galatians. We looked at chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Galatians, that if you're united to Christ, then we become what? We are adopted as sons of God, and therefore we are members of God's household. We are brothers and sisters in Christ if we are true believers. And Paul alludes to the family metaphor one more time, even in the book of Galatians chapter 6, in which we read, verse 10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the what? Household of faith. He says those of us who are in the family of God, we ought to be doing good to those people First, that's our main priority, and then we try to do good to other people as well. So here's Paul reminding Timothy that there are very significant and definite implications about these different forms of love shared among the different members of a family called the local church. Turn with me now to chapter 5 of 1 Timothy and watch how Paul expands on this with his protege, his pastor in training, if you will, Timothy. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Here we learn that God, the members of God's household are to take into account what kind of person they're relating to, whether they might be young or old or male or female. Notice how he says this. This is 14.12 in your pew Bible. First Timothy 1 first Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Now that's very, very significant. What he's saying here is that the fundamental principles regarding the structures of human family are to be applied in the dynamics of the local church, which is God's family. Now, this means, and this is a bold statement, but I think I'm fair in saying this, this means that women are unable to fulfill the role of fathers in God's family. A woman, no matter how capable, no matter how gifted, can never become a father of a family. Now, this is why, then, we should not be surprised that Paul is giving different directives, then, in this book and in other parts of the New Testament. there is different directives for the role of women and the role of men within what? God's family. And so we see that, and I should have given this in your notes, so I apologize, but if you want to write these down, these are some critical texts in which Paul makes these kinds of directives. For women, he says in 1 Timothy 2, In Titus 2, in 1 Timothy 3, along with 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, and also 1 Peter 3. There's a number of passages where Paul speaks to women and tries to specifically give them directives and uh, and, um, insights as to how they are to fulfill their particular role. Now let me be clear here. Both men and women, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't give you the men. Men's uh, terms of text in Scripture are 1 Timothy 2 and 3, chapter 3, and Titus 2. Now, let me be clear. Both men and women are equal before God in their essence and in their dignity. But men and women serve the purposes of God and the purposes of the gospel in the family of God with different roles. Just as that's true in the human family, so it's true in the family of God. And these roles, I'm arguing this morning, are not interchangeable. Now let's just take a few minutes here, and in your notes we're going to now move to the role of men in the church. Let's take just a few minutes to just try to show illustrations of what I'm talking about here. Now let's not forget that in writing to Timothy, Paul is speaking into the life of this man who is serving as a pastor and overseer and elder of the household of God in the city of Ephesus. And he wants Timothy to understand that there are biblical requirements, and he's going to spell them out here, as to for those who want to carry out these father-like responsibilities in the local church, he says, you've got to follow these directives. You don't just pick anybody you want have some very specific things you need to make sure are true of these individuals. And so they're found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Maybe you could have that in front of you, also repeated in Titus chapter 1. But look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Notice the masculine pronouns in that particular verse which are also found throughout those next few verses from one till six. And you'll notice here that he states what's important and what we're looking for in the person who assumes the role of eldership and overseer of a local church. They must be a godly man. Godly men are the ones who should therefore be put in this position. And notice verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. These are not optional, uh, wished-for characteristics. These are things that must be in place. These are things that must be true of qualities exhibited in the men who would assume the the servant-leader role in God's household. And these qualities then should be true, obviously, for every man. We would want that. And it obviously is something that's a goal that every man ought to have. And say, I, I want to strive and I want to uh, desire and I have a, 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 an aspiration to move in this direction that my life would be so that these qualities are in my life. Because obviously, these qualities are the kinds of qualities that make for a man who honors God and who is a godly man. But. While that may be something that we all strive for or long for or hope aspire for, they are mandatory for elders and overseers. And so Paul insists that Timothy not appoint any man to be an elder who is not living an exemplary life. Now I want to stop right there. When I look at this comment, above reproach, which I would understand to mean there's no flagrant sin that you can stick on this—it does, it just doesn't stick. It's like Teflon, man. It just doesn't hold. There's no obvious area of of a flagrant sin that this person is known for in their life now. I'm not talking about their past life. I'm talking about where they are now. Now, let me just say again: Why is that so important? Why does he say this must be in place? Why is someone's example such a huge deal? when it comes to the role of a man within the church who serves in a position of authority, servant servant leaders. And I would say this. I believe it's because people who are serving that role need to be like Christ in the sense that they have to take the truth and live it out incarnationally. It's not enough to just say the truth. Jesus didn't come and just speak truth up in the heavens and say this is the truth and this is what you need to know and this is what you need to you know, bank on. He came and he lived the truth out. And there's something to be said of incarnationally living truth out, living the gospel out in real people, men who are committed to that kind of gospel ministry. And so Paul says, look, I'm not looking for perfect men. That would certainly have eliminated me a long time ago. But we're looking for men who we would call blameless. Blameless. Now, an elder is to be what? Also a one-woman man. A one-woman man. We're not talking about necessarily their marital status as if they're not a polygamist. He's not talking about that. That's not an issue for those people. He's saying I, an elder must be a man totally devoted to his wife if he's married. If he's not married, he needs to be a sexually pure man, or even if he isn't married, he needs to be a sexually pure man who is loyal if he's married to his wife, devoted to his wife. In other words, he's not a person struggling with pornography, would be an example. He must be a temperate man, clear-headed, prudent well-ordered in the priorities of his life. He's not just running around with 16 things going on he can't really focus on the things that really are important. He lives an orderly life. He must be hospitable. That means a person who's known to open his home and known to open his heart to people, to minister to them, to try to encourage them, to share the love of Christ with them in practical ways like that, hospitality. He also says he must be able to preach and teach, not a drinker not violent, considerate, a man who promotes unity, who is not motivated by money, who is not a recent convert, and he must have a good reputation outside the church. Can you see why all these are so significant and important? If if someone has those qualities, it would be a joy to serve underneath them, wouldn't it? It would be a joy to be under their oversight and their servant leadership. And I would suggest to you that these character traits don't just come out of the sky as if someone all of a sudden receives some anointing and they go from day one, they're a person who is struggling with drinking and who's into pornography and all, and then two days later, boom, they've all of a sudden they've got these things. That's not going to happen, my friend. He's talking about the fact that these individuals, these men, have been drawing the riches of the gospel understanding the implications of who Christ is and the glories of the gospel and applying it to their hearts over a long period of time so that we see the fruit and the evidence of that application of gospel truth to their hearts is beginning to be shown by the way they conduct themselves and the way they handle themselves. They they are who they are wherever they are and they're living a life that shows the gospel has really drawn deeply down with roots deep down in their hearts. And therefore we see the fruit of what? God honoring lives. Now, I want to make one more very important point because you say, all right, well, those are all good quality traits, but there's one I missed verses 4 and 5. When it comes to men qualifying as elders and overseers, they must be what? Good managers of their own households. You see the logical connection now that Paul's making here? Again, you have to hear last week's sermon to match it up with this one today, because here he's saying that the men who are serving in leadership roles, they must first fulfill their role of being a godly leader in their own homes. First. And the role of being a servant leader is developed. It is demonstrated first in our roles as husbands and fathers in our homes. For those of us who are married, those of us who have children. A man is ready to serve as a leader in God's household after he has proven his servant leadership in his own household. Not the other way around. And God's family is best led by men who are not passive, but men who demonstrate loving care and loving concern for those who are under their care. They know how to instruct biblically, and they know how to correct biblically and know how to discipline their children biblically. And they love and they nourish and they cherish their wives, and therefore, we see in them, they have shown that they know how to do this, they're doing it in their own home, therefore, they should be the people who would give the privileges and honor and responsibility to shepherd and lead with servant-loving leadership the family of God. I don't think there's too much controversial there. That seems very, very clear to me that if you argue that from the family relationship in the, in the household of one's own and then the household of God, those things make sense. Now, I've got to really quickly run through this. So you're going to be mad at me because I'm not going to say much about this point. But the role of women in the church. I don't have time to go into a large. Thorough examination of all of these issues on this expansive topic, but I want to direct your attention to chapter two of First Timothy. Chapter two, verse nine. Paul says, after he verse eighty wants men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. In other words, he wants men to be unified and to be men who really are praying, being spiritually minded, seeking God. Then he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. And and then he speaks to a cultural thing they had going on there where people would wear these outlandish hairdos with gold and gems and all kinds of unbelievable stuff, very high, piled up high. I mean, it's like knocks you over. It's unbelievable, over-the-top fashion statement to the point where it was almost... uh, Totally insensitive to the fact that they have people here in the church who have very little resources. And here's a person with like 10 years of money invested from their salary in their hair. I mean, it just, it was causing a problem. It's like, it doesn't do anything to try to, you know, bring people together as a family. It's almost like, hey, look at me. You know, I mean, we don't need that. That's not modesty. It's like, I want attention as to what who I have and what I have, what I have and and who I am. So then he says what? I want women to be known by their good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity. With self restraint. Can't unpack all that whole text there, but let me just say this. In these verses, Paul explains that women are not to exercise authority over men. That's one of his main points there. Verse 12. And in order to not jeopardize the God given role of men in the church, women then are called upon, because of the gospel, to yield and to submit, to follow Jesus, who also submitted, and in so yielding to the men, Therefore, when it comes to the idea of public teaching and preaching of the word and assuming leadership over other men, they say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to yield to the ways in which God is asking me to yield. Now, why do they do this? Is it because Paul is saying, I have cultural biases here? Is it because Paul is, again, this patriarchal discrimination saying, well, this is the way it's always been. I'm a man. Is it all about control? No. He's arguing from creation. He's arguing this is the way God set things up. So therefore, the role is tied to the differentiation that God designed between men and women from the beginning. So you've got to go all the way back into Genesis and think that through. It's not a cultural thing. It's a creation thing. Now, this does not suggest that women, and hear me out now, this does not suggest that women are inferior to men in their teaching ability. Not at all. In their communicative skills, not at all. Many women are far better at communicating than I am. Or their biblical insights. They have tremendous insights into the Word. It just means that women in the local church are encouraged to use their spiritual gifts by focusing those gifts and their abilities to instructing and helping the women around them, helping children and boys and girls around them in ways that indeed show that they are complementing and working in harmony with those who are in, in positions of leadership, the men over them, so that we what? So that we give glory to God and work together so that the gospel is sown and we honor the fact that there are these differing distinctive roles between men and women as God has assigned them. Now, I would understand the best way to interpret the parameters. How do you know where you draw the line here? I would suggest the best way to draw those parameters Paul's directives is this that women are not to be ordained as elders and they are not to pursue preaching a preaching role over other men in the local church. And we need to remember now, in saying all these things, that Christianity, rather than suppressing and oppressing women, has historically raised the status of women. So, this is not a matter of oppression. And history shows that Christian teaching elevated women to greater respect, greater privileges than they had ever enjoyed in the past. The New Testament insists that while men and women enjoy status of being equal before God, they nonetheless are assigned different roles in their households and the household of God. Now, I don't have time to unpack this either, but look sometime later today at Romans chapter 16, in which Paul, at the end of that book, starts listing hello to this person give my shout out to this person hello to this person over here be sure to greet this person and he lists a number of people who've been helpful in the ministry that he's been involved in very interesting listing because in that listing there are many practical uh, suggestions implications i uh, maybe i'll talk about that in just a minute here i got ahead of myself i'll say that for my final points here sorry I guess my question I want to raise at this point was this. How can we expect the differentiation of roles within a marriage relationship, of a wife who is, because of the gospel and following Jesus, is learning to submit to the role of her husband as the head of of his family and of his wife, and yet having the church a wife that somehow would be in an elevated position which he's teaching the men, telling them what to do. It 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 messes the whole equation up. So I again raise the question, how can you affirm the ordination of women when these things are clearly taught in Scripture of the differentiation of roles between men and women in their house and in the household of God? Okay, let's get into some practical implications here. What do we draw from this brief overview of the roles of men and women? Number one, I'm going to give you at least five here. Elders, and you must hear me on this one too, have limits on their authority. Elders will definitely answer to God for the way in which they use their opportunities for leadership. Therefore, they dare not abuse their delegated authority. The passage I go to here is 1 Peter, chapter 5, in which Peter says, listen, I'm a fellow elder, I'm writing to you elders, and I want you to know something. Here, let's turn right there and just show you real quickly. 1 Peter, chapter 5, page 1442. By the way, it doesn't say, I, Peter, the first pope. He says, I, therefore, exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder." And then he goes on to say, listen, I'm also a person who watched Christ die and suffer on that cross. He says, I want to sober you with that thought. Don't you ever take lightly what you're doing in a local church because that church was bought by the blood of Christ. And any church that abuses their authority of those who are in positions of leadership and shows such disrespect for women and holds them down and doesn't let them do anything in the church is indeed they're going to be accountable to God, to Christ himself, who is the head of the church. So Paul says, I mean, Peter says here, he says according, uh, um, we are to what? As a witness of the Christ, partaker of the glory that is revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to what? The way you think it works best for you? No, according to the will of God. You follow God's ways. <laughs> if you're in this position, you better be following God and what he has clearly taught in the scriptures. And then say you're not going to do it for money, you're not going to do it with eagerness, you want to do it, verse 3. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples. Elders are to be men who are like a billboard that says, if you're looking at my life, hopefully you're going to see some measure of Christ, and somehow the treasuring of the gospel becomes clear in how I'm living my life. Anything good in my life, it's pointing to Christ, it's pointing to the gospel. And therefore, church members can and are to subject themselves to this position of authority. And this is taught in Hebrews chapter 13. Take a second look there, if you will. A couple pages over, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Church members are to yield to the godly leadership of those that God has allotted to them. And here's a text that proves that very explicitly, clearly. Hebrews 13, 17, page 1433. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There we go. It's not abusive authority, they must give account, and those of us who live under that authority, we must subject ourselves to it, submit to it. Now, this implies that in order to obey this injunction, to obey your your leaders, believers must be formally associated with the local church so that you can say, those are my leaders. I am under their care. That's why church membership is so critically important. You must say, I am one of you. I am a part of this flock. I am putting myself underneath those whom God has put over me as shepherds of the flock of God. And Therefore, each member is to submit yourself to godly shepherds who are over you. You can't do that if you're not a member of a local church. So that's another reason why many of us need to take seriously the whole idea of pursuing church membership if you really are a believer in Jesus Christ. All right, number two, application implication. We as church leaders are committed, those of us who are in positions of leadership, elders and deacons, that we are committed to encouraging the men of our church to assume leadership roles by giving them ministry and serving opportunities so that servant leaders can be developed among our men. And by the way, if you look at one of our core values, I don't know if you're familiar that we have a statement of all of our core values and our mission statement. Number five of core values says, we value making mature disciples and servant leaders. We're passionate about that. We believe that leaders are no, not good leaders unless they're servant leaders. And so our vision statement expresses our heart's desire and we're longing to disciple men so that they might see God's glory reflected in the lives of these men, transformed disciples of Christ who live out gospel truths in everyday life in our homes, in our church, and in the world. So that's what we're committed to as a church. We believe it's very important that those things be lived out in our homes and in our church. That's what disciples do. All right, number three. True discipleship involves training up wise, godly men to be servant leaders in their own households first, and then seeing those same godly, spiritually mature men minister and shepherd to many others in God's household. Hear me out on this one, please. It is not wise to appoint elders in a local church and I would even dare say it's not wise to even have and select a pastor of a church who may know tremendous amounts of orthodox theology and doctrine, who may be quite gifted at discerning error and discerning and defending the truth and sort of uh, uh, being a refuter of those who contradict the truth. He might have tremendous abilities, but if he is a person who is first and foremost is practically not able to shepherd those under his care in a way in which they know that he cares for them, and that he's living out the fact that he is indeed a person who is not just knowledgeable, but who has also put knowledge along with a caring concern for those under him. That is an absolute critical combination. You can't have one without the other. And you can't have a person who cares and doesn't know theology and doctrine. Two must be married together. Number four. Are you still with me? Okay, we're almost done. Number four. Women must be encouraged to use their spiritual gifts. We want to encourage women in ministry, it's vital. We need it. I need it. Some of the greatest help I receive is by oftentimes seeing women using their gifts. It's wonderful. And women are strongly encouraged, look at chapter 2 of Titus. Titus 2, verses 4 and 5. Women are strongly encouraged to train younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. What an incredible area of ministry to pursue. The doors are wide open in areas that you could pursue in ministry as a woman. Talk about making a difference. And this is where I meant to say earlier, Romans 16, I got ahead of myself, Romans 16, Paul says what? In the listing of all the people he gives greetings and shouts out to, he mentions Phoebe as what? A servant, a helper of many, and of myself as well. Here's Phoebe helping Paul. And many people have concluded that Phoebe was a deaconess, that she was a person who was a servant Of the church, there is also in the list, there is Mary, verse six of Romans sixteen. She worked hard in the ministry there, and there's two other women, Tryphena and Tryphosa. They they are all workers in the Lord. There's Perseus. There's numbers of women in there. He's acknowledging that they have such valuable contribution. I would like to say again, let us never lose sight, my friend. If you're a woman in this church. Please don't ever lose sight of the tremendous impact you can have to shape and impact a life that who knows where that person will go and what they'll end up doing in your role as either a grandmother or even a mother. An example I make of this is what? Where did Timothy come from? How is it that he was so useful now? He's there as a pastor of the church there in Ephesus. What's all his beginnings? We hear nothing of his father. Nowhere in Scripture do we hear anything about Timothy's father. It's completely zero. It's Paul who ended up being his spiritual father. But what do we hear about? Paul affirms that his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were the ones who did what? They sowed into his life Scripture when he was young. It was the two godly women teaching him Scripture helping him to understand there is a God who's created all things and you are designed and made his image and you are to serve him and and to follow Christ and understand who Christ is and his death on the cross. They they sowed the seeds of the gospel and the scriptures in his life. And guess what? Those seeds of leadership qualities were planted by women who probably don't have any big titles. and Nobody gave them a big plaque. Nobody made a big deal of them when they were doing that. But look at the fruit that came from Timothy's life. And I would just say this. I look back in my life, and I'm not a person that's putting myself up on some platform here. Whoa, look at me. I'm just saying the reason I am here today, one reason, is by God and his grace, took a woman named Fenella Jenkins who had a passion for children in our church and I grew up. We had a very small church, and she was so effective teaching the word. I can still remember some of those lessons, and I was four and five years old. Some of you are saying, I can't remember last week's sermon. I can't either. (laughs) But I can still remember some lessons that Fenella Jenkins taught me when I was a small child because she was putting the seeds of the gospel into my little heart, helping me begin to understand a biblical worldview. And God used that, and that same woman and her husband taught Sunday school in that church. He, He taught me when I was in junior high. We painted our room orange. We thought we were so cool. And he would let us talk about whatever and ask questions. And let me tell you something. That man, he would cry, saying, I, I've thought about what we were reading about in the Scripture today. He would start crying because it was meant so much to him. It was a powerful impact in my life. And this woman and her husband, Fenella and, and uh, Bill Jenkins, they would say to me, when I would come home from college, they'd say, you know, we're praying for you. We believe God's going to use you. We believe that God is calling you. He's using you. That's powerful stuff, man. Now, was that an elder doing that? No. This is a woman who says, I just want to invest in the children around me. I mean, we don't ever want to say, you have no part in ministry. (laughs) You are vital in ministry. We desperately need godly women planting the seeds of the gospel and truth and living it out. So, don't ever sell yourself short, my friends. If you're a grandmother, if you're a grandfather, if you're a mother or a father, listen here. When you're applying the truth of the scriptures to the hearts of your children and grandchildren, it can bring pr- tremendous fruit of usefulness in the family of God in the future. How about one amen on that, huh? One amen. For those of us who wonder where we're going as, as parents, and you scratch your head saying, Is it making any difference? Keep at it, my friends. Keep at it. Number five, last point. Okay, here we go. I say this with a very heavy heart. I've thought about this for a while. I'm thinking we're talking about all these father figures in the church. We're talking about homes where there are fathers who assume this God-given role. And my heart just breaks when I think about so many children growing up in today's world who do not have a father figure at home. He's gone. Many of these kids don't even know who their father is. And we're seeing the fruit of that, are we not? We see young men who don't care about anything, who have no purpose, no sense of self-control, no sense of of, I'm here for God-given reason to be a provider and a protector of women, and they don't have any clue about that role. And if you look at certain styles of music, rap music and and some of this, uh, I don't even know what kind of music it is, but I've seen some of these videos. The way they depict women, it is so demeaning. And it's all about looking cool and using women as objects for self-fulfillment. It is so ugly, it's so empty. And I say this with a heavy heart. Those children who are deprived, it's not their fault. They didn't say, well, you know, I want to sign up for a no-father home. They enter into that without choosing anything but to have that. And this is what I say to you, my friend. They are deprived of godly male examples. They need Christ. They need to know Jesus is the wonderful example to them. He will become a father to them. God will become a father. They'll be adopted into a family. My friend, the point here is that the church must provide these role models to the generation of children around us who don't understand what a family is. They don't understand a father in a home. And we as believers can help them see the glories of the gospel. That Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. On the third day he was rose again from the dead. And he is a life-changing, adopting God who brings sinners in, gives them the dignity and the the status of being a child of God. Loves on them. Gives them a sense of purpose and calling and life and identity, new identity. And I would say this again, my friend. I'm impassionately pleading. If you've got time on your hands, to spare, to invest in Long Island Youth Mentoring or take a kid under your wing, whether it's in this church or whether it's Long Island Youth Mentoring or somewhere, find a kid who doesn't have that role model and be that person for them. And my friend, that is spreading seeds of the gospel in ways that who knows what good will come of that. Let's pray. Father, we we certainly do not ever want to handle the scriptures as an attempt to try to hold on to power and control and use it as a club to hit people over the head and try to oppress anybody. Father, we want people to be set free in the gospel. We want them to to enjoy the roles that you have designed us to enjoy to find freedom in, in, in understanding that you are the only hope of seeing all the brokenness in our society and culture and relationships, particularly in the family. They're so broken. Lord, I pray that you would help our church, our beloved household of faith, this family of God. May we be, Lord, a shining light, offering love and devotion and care and concern and correction and teaching and and love and, and examples to them, to anybody, Lord, so that they might begin to see and appreciate how wonderful you are and how wonderful are your ways that you have created us, equal but different as men and women. And so, Father, toward that end, we pray that you would be glorified, that you would help us Those of us who are elders, Lord, help us. We need grace. We are not perfect people. We have tremendous responsibility. It's sobering. Lord, thank you for this wonderful flock. Thank you for these people who do so oftentimes willingly surrender and submit. Lord, we pray that you would raise up a generation of, of godly young men who will also serve this wonderful flock for many years to come. And Father, help us in our homes and among where we have children around us, that we would be sowing the gospel seeds in their lives, Lord. And also I pray, Lord, for the women of our church. May they feel appreciated. May they feel like they have wonderful avenues of ministry to pursue. May they feel cared for. May they feel safe. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.